all of our missions were life or death, and they were strategically important to the effort. And so when I first took it, I had a view that therefore it was my responsibility to make those decisions, to approve those operations. But I quickly found out that I'm not the right person to be approving those operations. One, mm. I can never be deeply enough involved to really be value add to assessing whether we should do it. And what I'm really better to do is to provide an environment of information and empowerment and a sense of accountability for what we do that gives an environment in which subordinate leaders who are closer to the problem and actually more qualified to make the decision than me making. Now here's the hard part, I'm still responsible. So the big question is this, how do small business owners like us grow our business, grow our leadership and develop our teams in a way that allows us to get our products and services out of the world yet still remain profitable? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner, and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Hey, before we get into today's episode, did you know that Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agency owners in the country, providing monthly accounting, CFO services, and tax preparation? Check them out at club.capital. Welcome to another episode of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. My name is Bradley Hamner, your host. You know, since launching the podcast, one of the most amazing parts has been the people that you get to meet and know, and I've been fortunate enough to meet some pretty incredible people, and today's episode is no exception. He's a transformational leader with a remarkable record of achievement. General Stanley McChrystal was called one of America's greatest warriors by Secretary of Defense Robert Gates. He's the son and grandson of Army officers. McChrystal graduated from West Point in 1976 as an infantry officer. He then completed Ranger training, later Special Forces training, and over the course of his career, he held leadership and staff positions in the Army Special Forces, Army Rangers, 82nd Airborne Division, and the Joint Staff. From 2003 to 2008, General McChrystal commanded the Joint Special Operations Command, responsible for leading the nation's deployed military counterterrorism efforts around the globe. Since retiring from the military, General McChrystal has served on several corporate boards of directors, and he is a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, where he teaches a course on leadership. Man, I tell you what, I think I would go back to school to take that class. Additionally, he's the best-selling author of leadership books, My Share of the Task, Team of Teams, Leaders, and his latest book, Risk, A User's Guide, which we'll dive into today. Without further ado... Here is my conversation with retired General Stanley McChrystal. Wouldn't it be a great start to 2021 by having more leads in your book of business? Well, that's where our partners at Direct Clicks Inc. come in. Their team's dialed-in approach to running Google ads and online SEO campaigns maximize the quality and the volume of your leads, whether that's for inbound phone calls or even exclusive leads through your website. Direct Clicks Inc. works only with PNC insurance agency owners, so they have thousands of hours creating, A-B split testing, and improving online campaigns specifically for insurance. They also understand why each and every marketing dollar matters in providing true results, low paper clicks, transparency, and attention to detail, all of which is discussed in depth during your monthly review calls. Reach out to the Direct Clicks team at directclicksinc.com. That's directclicksinc.com and find out how they can make a difference in your approach to generating new business. Are you ready to get out of the daily rut and begin working at your highest level? Coach P Consulting will help you do just that. Using the same strategies he did to sell over 500 life insurance policies in 2020 and on track for over 600 life insurance policies in 2021. No, this is not your regular one and done type coaching. You'll get personalized coaching two days a week, every week of the month, and you'll get a live look at the behind the scenes team training and an office performing at the highest level. Coach P currently has a 100% retention rate for everyone who joins. And hey, those numbers speak for themselves. Coach P will train your team alongside his own to show you the exact steps they are taking to achieve chairman circle in two agencies, exotic travel, and multi-line presence club. So whether your goal is to be the top of your local market or amongst the best in the country, this training will give you the strategies and tactics to get you there. For just $250 a month, you'll get high-level coaching each week from someone who is already getting it done at that level. 
His strategies work, and it's time to put them to work for you. Sign up at CoachPConsulting.com and get 50% off your first month of coaching when you mention the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Again, that's CoachPConsulting.com. General Stanley McChrystal, welcome to the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. We're excited to have you. So we always start with background and origin story, but I'm going to ask you a question about your background that you may not get asked very often. You have a very rich military family from whenever you were a young boy with your siblings and your grandfather and your father. How did that time, whenever you were growing up, impact and just shape you as a person and also the leader that you are today? That's a good question. On the one hand, I didn't live on army bases in my conscious years of my youth because when I was very young, we did. But then by the time I was three, my father had moved us to Washington, D.C. He worked in the Pentagon and then he would leave us there when he went to Vietnam and came back. So I didn't spend a lot of time on bases, but I was very conscious that my father was a soldier. And so my picture of what a leader looked like was my father and my idea of how how you should treat people came from my father. I never knew my grandfather. I only knew of him, but my father and then some of his friends. So I got this sense from a very early age that I wanted to be my father. Therefore, I wanted to be a soldier. And then as I extrapolated that, I started to think what that really meant and what leadership was. And and that, of course, evolved throughout my lifetime, like most people. You know, as I shared before we got started, I'm coming to you in Huntsville, Alabama, a very strong military presence in this part of the country. And there's this image of discipline and accountability and structure that happens in the military. And while that is certainly true, the environments that you were in were anything but that. They were constantly changing and adaptable. And when we begin to think about everything that's going on in the world at the time that we're recording this, still in the COVID pandemic, there's so much change. And in your newest book, Risk, you begin to talk about a healthy risk immune system. Specifically, what do you mean by healthy risk immune system whenever it comes to, because we can think about it when it comes to our personal health, right? But what does that mean for our organizations and why is that important? Sure. First, if you think of the analogy that we draw to the human immune system, you say, well, okay, we've all got one, but what does it do? Because we don't spend a lot of time fixating on it. Well, what it does is about 10,000 times a day, It detects risks, threats that are coming to us, pathogens and other things. It assesses each of them, whether it is in fact a threat of danger to our health. It then responds. It attacks it if it's bad or defends whatever or ignores it if it's not. And finally, it learns from it. And that's sort of the the idea of vaccines. It makes the body ready to respond to that threat should it appear again and do it more efficiently. Well, organizations have the equivalent. And the risk immune system, as we call it, is really almost a number of factors or strengths or weaknesses, such as communication within the organization, how well information is shared effectively, the narrative. Do people in the organization understand and believe and align on a clear narrative? And can the organization operate in a timely fashion? Can it do things as quickly as need be? Does it act or does it admire a problem when it's, you know, sometimes we have a risk that comes in life. We all just sort of stare at it deer in the headlights and don't do anything. And there are 10 of these factors and they interact. They create the equivalent of a system that if it's healthy, then the organization becomes able to detect, assess, respond and learn and to be resilient in the face of risk. Because our thesis is that You sort of waste time if you try to predict every risk that's going to appear because some of them are impossible to know. Others are impossible to do anything about. And so rather than spending your time looking externally, if you make your organization stronger, more resilient, more healthy, we could say, you're going to do a lot better. And so I think we see as we research for the book, we see countless examples of where organizations tried to predict the next great risk and they got overwhelmed by either unexpected risks or very predictable things they should have been able to deal with. You mentioned, and you have a great image in the book of gears and how one thing affects another to affects another. And then there was one where leadership more than any other factor can make the system function or fail. 
quite frankly, we could have a four hour conversation around leadership. But I do want to ask you a few things. Can you just touch on why leadership and how you say how we direct and inspire the overall risk immune system, why that is so important? Well, if we think about it, if we're in a big organization, we've ever been in an organization that is large enough to have different components. Sometimes they're siloed. Sometimes they're just distinct performing their function. We need a couple of things to act. We need information to act, but we also need authority to act. And we need, in some cases, a little bit of inspiration or motivation to move and and act. Almost always, leadership becomes the critical, we describe it as a wrench in the book that gets the other gears moving. But the reality is, if you've got a threat approaching an organization and everybody's wondering, what should we do? You sometimes need a calm, steady, decisive voice that says, okay, everybody, this is a threat to us. We are going to act start acting. Now, they don't have to micromanage everything involved in the reaction because I think there's a great room for initiative. But the reality is somebody has got to often tell the organization, pay attention, this matters. Now we've got to do this. And then set feedback loops so that that leader can give information back to the organization. Yep, we're doing well or we're not doing well. And this is what we need to do from here on. We'd like to say that everybody can operate individually but we don't have a wide enough field of view. We're all operating in our lane. And so we've got to get context to know when and how we can act. You know, in preparing for the podcast, I heard you say something I think is a great segue from what you just mentioned. And that is you, by your own admission, early on started to make the change from becoming a decision maker with everything that you did to a priority setter. And so how do you see that relating to what you just mentioned there? Very much. And I think it's an experience many leaders have as an evolution through their career, because early in our career, we're focused on being competent at what we do, technically proficient in our job. and We do our part of the overall effort. But then when you get bigger, suddenly you're leading through people and there are experts below you that know much more than you do. And they're the appropriate people to execute certain things. But in fact, they need somebody to tie that together. In my military career, I found that as I got more senior, I had these wonderfully competent subordinates, but they needed to be empowered and they needed to be empowered with a couple of things. One was context, information. I needed to share more information. I couldn't treat them like mushrooms and say, just do what I say, because they didn't understand the big picture and they couldn't shape what they did effectively. The next thing I had to do was expectation. This is, you are, you have the authority and the responsibility to act more broadly. And Mm -hmm. so leadership essentially can unstick all the other factors that can get caught up with uh, a little bit of inertia and leadership unsticks that. I would be remiss if I didn't have an opportunity to ask you this delegation, because it just kind of one of the things I'm hearing some of the times, and you can maybe even point to this that you were giving the responsibility and the authority to act in decisions that may have been life or death, but you were pointing the way. And so a lot of times we as business leaders were so slow to want to delegate because we think we're the only one that can do that. And for someone like yourself, that's been at the highest levels with the greatest things at risk possible. How do you see delegation as, as part of that, what you just mentioned there? This is easy for us to talk about, but it's actually hard to do. And so I want to make sure listeners understand the difference there. Often when we are leaders, what we do is we think that we are responsible to make all the decisions because that's why we're in the job. When I was the commanding general of Joint Special Operations Command, our counterterrorist forces, all of our missions were life or death, and they were strategically important to the effort. And so when I first took it, I had a view that therefore it was my responsibility to make those decisions, to approve those operations. But I quickly found out that I'm not the right person to be approving those operations. One, Mm. I can never be deeply enough involved to really be value-add to assessing whether we should do it. And what I'm really better to do is to provide an environment of information and empowerment and a sense of accountability for what we do that gives an environment in which subordinate leaders who are closer to the problem and actually more qualified to make the decision than me make it. Now, here's the hard part. I'm still responsible. 
And a lot of leaders struggle with this. I remember getting with my subordinate leaders and saying, okay, you've got to delegate authority lower so that we get quicker. But many of my subordinate leaders said, well, wait a minute, am I still responsible for the outcome? The answer is yes. And you go, well, if I'm not making the decision, but I'm responsible, that's putting my fate in somebody who's junior and less experienced mm. than, than my hands. Got it. Mm. <laughs> that's tough. What you've yeah. got to is develop them, help them, support them. But there's no other way, a very centralized system where theoretically you go to the smartest person at the top of the organization doesn't work anymore. If it ever mm. did work, it's too mm. slow now and it's not involved enough at the lowest level to know the right answer. In fact, when I was in Afghanistan, I was now at the, the senior most part of my career. We would come up with these strategies and plans and we'd send them out all around the country through levels of the chain of command. And we realized, and it takes a little bit of humility to realize this, the order that I gave them may not be appropriate on the ground in some remote place. I may say this, and it makes great sense in Kabul when I say it, but when it gets down to this small valley or village, it doesn't make sense. And so what we told people was, if the order we give you is not right, execute the order we should have given you, meaning know the big picture, know what we're trying to do, and then do what's appropriate, not the specific of what we said to do. That's incredible insight and just a great metaphor for what, what we're talking about, how important it is to cast the vision for where that you want to take the organization. And in some of your other books, leaders in particular, you talk about the importance of empowering followers. And that's kind of what you're mentioning there. Early on in the book, let me read this one section because I think it's important for our listeners. Why was the attack on Pearl Harbor such a devastating surprise? It's a familiar pattern. Fixated on external factors, individuals, organizations fail to tend to their risk immune system and become vulnerable even to perceived risk. Time and again, we see that the greatest risk to us as individuals and to our organizations is us. Can you just speak to that? Yeah, and I'll draw two parallels here. One is Pearl Harbor. With the passage of time, we refer to the sneak attack by the dastardly Japanese on Pearl Harbor as this day which will live in infamy. And that's true. But the reality, it was anything but a real surprise because for almost a year, we had been at loggerheads with Japan because of their policies in China primarily. So we had embargoed raw materials to them. And we put Japan in a position where it was not a viable state unless it either got the United States to release those embargoes or it started a war to go to grab the raw materials. So we put Japan into a corner. And so we knew they were going to have to act, one of which was sort of surrender, which was unlikely. And the other was be aggressive. We even knew that they were aggressively looking around at potential targets. We had a good read into Japanese diplomatic cables and whatnot. So we're actually reading part of their mail. And so there was this high likelihood that war was going to break out really within days. Now, Pearl Harbor was not viewed as the most likely place to be struck because of its geographic location was far enough that a carrier strike was a bold endeavor. But it wasn't possible. Yet, with all of those indicators and warnings going out from the United States and and people being afraid or being aware, what you have on Pearl Harbor is planes parked wingtip to wingtip. And the theory was you protect them from saboteurs, but you have most of the fleet in port. We were just lucky that the carriers were out on an exercise. So the reality is, despite all of this, we're so fixated on what are the Japanese going to do? We really didn't look inside and say, well, what is it should we be doing to be more resilient if they do something? And it was almost criminally negligent to be as unprepared as we were. Hmm. And the attack was not as big a surprise. And and I would draw the same analogy to COVID-19. And I know this is a little bit controversial, but the reality is COVID-19 is not a new thing. That particular variant of the coronavirus is new, but we've seen similar viruses, pandemics from Spanish flu on and back in history. So we know that it is not only possible, it is inevitable that we will have the rise of additional threats like that. 
And we know what public health works. There's a good track record of that. So we know that we have an inevitable threat. We know the solution to it. And then when it appears, we freeze again, like deer in the headlights for lots of reasons. One of the big ones was leadership, but there were other parts of the risk immune system that just didn't function effectively. And I think we still feel it to this day. We're still struggling with narrative. We're still struggling with leadership. We're struggling with a number of aspects and it's costing lives. It's extraordinary. Do people recognize your agency brand? More importantly, do people care about your brand? At Relevant Marketing Solutions, we partner with you to clarify your message and deliver it through multiple marketing channels, creating a brand that inspires. With over 10 years experience working with insurance agencies, our team can help your agency not only get noticed, but start cultivating brand champions. From creating a logo to putting it on a coffee mug, we are your one-stop shop for all things marketing. We can even produce a video of you drinking out of your cool new mug. Visit us at relevantadvantage.com to learn more. And if you're a state farm agent, you can also find us at sfagentpromos.com and be sure to enter Club Capital at checkout for a special discount. That's Club Capital, lowercase and no spaces at checkout for a special discount. Relevant Marketing Solutions, helping you cultivate brand champions. Are you an agency owner looking to grow your revenue and increase your bottom line? Club Capital is here to help. Built for agents by agents, so we know your struggles. With accounting, payroll, and HR solutions, tax services, analytics, and more, let's get you on the path to serious success. Using data-driven insights, you'll grow your business based on revenue and expense comparisons alongside your top performing peers. With over $100 million in tracked annual revenue and $70 million in tracked annual expenses, we have the data to help you make better informed decisions for your agency. Let's make your back office less of a hassle and more of the strategic generator that powers the growth to take your agency and your leadership to the next level. Visit club.capital today to book your complimentary, no obligation demo. Club Capital, way more than a CPA firm. You detail also just about regarding the COVID-19. And again, a lot of people have different opinions of this. But the reality was, is that it is known that they were doing, and I think and believe in 2019, they had basically decided not to continue to fund, I cannot recall what it was called, but pandemic research, basically. And they decided not to move forward with it. And less than a year later, here we are, and we were caught totally unprepared. And I just have to pull this around to some of the things that our organizations and leaders who listen to this podcast are challenged with right now is hiring. Because of everything that's going on, people are having organizations, managers, leaders, business owners are having a really hard time to be able to find great people right now. And the marketplace and the hiring market is just really challenging. And so when you begin to think about that, how do we begin to make ourselves less vulnerable to risk in the future? Because, okay, we are where we are now. And you're saying one thing, we need to make sure that we're taking action, right? We just can't stand idly by and say, I don't don't know what to do and be paralyzed, but we need to take action. But then looking forward, how can we begin to prepare our immune system so that we're less vulnerable to different attacks, whether it's COVID, a hiring, you know, challenging hiring market, et cetera? Right. It's a great question. It's almost key to have we have to think. If we think about those kinds of things that are going to potentially threaten our organization, we try to to predict and we try to make a brittle wall. It's a little bit like creating the Maginot Line. If you get it exactly right, if you predict that the Germans are going to attack us and they're going to attack us right on this part of our border of France, and you build this impregnable line, then maybe you solve the problem. But as the French found out in 1940, they had built a very impressive line, but it wasn't complete. And so it left part of their border unsecured. And so the Germans simply went through that part that the Maginot Line did not protect. We need to think about that in our organizations. If I throw out the idea of cybersecurity now, cyber attack, because everybody's worried about and they should be. One of the new techniques from ransomware hackers is not to break into your system strictly technologically, what they do is they go to employees inside companies and they say, please insert this into your system. So they take a human to help them get around this Maginot line that you may have created with very expensive cybersecurity. They get inside and then boom, there they are. 
And what does that tell us? That tells us that those threats will almost always find a way to get inside and to hit you. Organizations have got to be prepared for the fact that they are going to have to deal with that reality. It's always going to be a problem. So what I would argue is you need to prepare a team that operates when things fall apart. You know, in the military, we used to do extensive planning, but every operation I went on never went exactly as planned. Even though they were brilliantly planned, as they always say, no plan survives enemy contact. And so what we focused on doing was creating an organization that as soon as things start to be, we call it in football, a broken play, you've got people with the relationships internally, with the initiative, with the basic skills that they can react adaptively. And that's the way our organizations have to be. We can't be brittle, process-driven, inflexible entities that do the following. We've got to be malleable. Adaptable would be the terms. And all of those factors are critical. And it's a mindset that bureaucracies sometimes struggle with because bureaucracies, if they're created on rules-driven processes, have you ever been to a clerk in a government bureaucracy and you go up and you have to have three documents and you've got two and you know and they go it says here you got a three but it doesn't make sense and that's what we've got to build in our organization you know i didn't know i was going to ask you this question but i think it's actually important you were just mentioning about that you went into the war with these elaborate plans and then you would make modifications along the way but never once did you say, well, that was my plan. It's not working. So therefore, you know, you just throw caution to the wind. I guess it's out the window. I don't know what to do now. But a lot of times as business owners and leaders, we'll do the same thing. And so we'll put together a business plan. So we're kind of getting towards the end of this year, looking into 2022 to build our business plans. And no business plan I've ever created has actually worked out the exact same way that we do. So I have to ask this, this real basic question. Why do we even do it? Why do we even put the plans together? What are your thoughts around that? It's a really good question. And I would say planning is extraordinarily important. As Dwight Eisenhower once said, the value of planning is not in the plan. It's in the planning. And so when you plan, you learn the problem. You study the problem. You study your options. You develop capabilities. As we looked at in the military for years, and I advocate today, war gaming, that is going through how the year will play out, never actually approximates how the year plays out. But what it does is it says, when things get ugly, what can I do? What levers can I pull? If I decide to cut costs, how long does it take me to cut costs in my company before I can actually harvest some of those costs? How quickly can I change direction in this or that or logistics or whatever? Unless you know those things, then you're far less adaptable. You know, whenever you see a movie, when something starts to go bad and the great leader brings everybody together and says, what can we do? And people start putting information. If they've done that beforehand through a wargaming process, they've learned what their options are, what their capabilities are. And then it's much easier to, we would say, option off the basic plan. No, that's really valuable. That's great insight. Okay. So I wanted to pull out a couple of the 10 risk factors. We've talked about one pretty extensively, leadership. I want to go to the very first one you mentioned, which is communication. And the reason I wanted to ask you about this one is because with so many people, remote work has become a much bigger thing in the last couple of years. And so this conversation is not so much about remote works specifically, but more about fragmented conversation, okay? Fragmented communication and how important it is to make sure at the time that we have with our teams that communication is actually being disseminated correctly. And so I'm sure that you can relate back to stories that you may have thought you were so clear as to what you were trying to communicate, kind of where things were going to go. And they went off and they took action on exactly what it was that they thought that you wanted, only for them to find out that's not exactly what you wanted. So can you speak to this communication, how important that is? Yeah, it's so hard. I'll start with just a story. When I was a regimental commander, I commanded the 75th Ranger Regiment, very elite unit in the U.S. Army. And very disciplined organization. And by the time I'm the colonel, I've been in it a long time. And I think I've got a lot of great ideas and guidance to impart. So I do. But I go out and talk to young rangers all the time. And I remember going to them and 
I would have conversations like there'd be three young rangers out in the field and I'd sit down with them and I'd start a conversation as it go. And, and then I'd ask them to ask me questions. And it took a while for them to get over there. Caution. I remember one of them asked me, I can't remember the exact question, but it was sort of like, sir, why do we have to wear our underwear on our heads? I remember going, what are you talking about? Nobody ever said you had to wear underwear on your heads. But guidance I'd gotten out by the time it made it way all the way through the chain of command had gotten corrupted unintentionally. But by the time the private's sitting there going, what in God's name is this guy talking about? And they're down there usually just being disciplined, putting their underwear in their head and going, I don't know if the old man's, you know, lost it. <laughs> so the first problem is just the fact that getting information to people clearly is hard. Mm-hmm. And it takes repetition. We always talk the rule of threes. Unless you've said it three times, you haven't said it. And leaders have got to be careful that they say it very clearly. And sometimes they have to use slightly different words just to make sure everybody's getting it. Then you've got to understand that they've got to be able to understand it. They've got to be willing and able to receive it. So you've got to ensure you've got the technical capability to get it to them, whether face-to-face or whether you've got get it over the computer, radio, whatever, telephone. You've got to be able to connect. They've got to be able to reach it on the other end, but then they've got to understand enough and have a willingness to take in what you've said, to digest it and go forward. I remember when I was a younger ranger officer, we were planning an operation and a guy gave an operations order and told the rangers, you know, okay, here's what we're going to do. And near the end of it, he says, we're going to be very careful not to create any collateral damage. And I was evaluating this platoon attack is what it's going to be. And so when they stopped, I said, can I ask a question? And I turned to one of the young rangers and I said, Ranger Smith, what is collateral damage? And the young ranger looked at me and says, so I don't know, but we're not going to have it. (laughs) And so, you know, there, a guy given a good order, but you don't have the ability for that young guy didn't have enough understanding to get that. So when we talk about communication, it's really an art. And it takes huge amounts of effort. It's not just transmitting. As we're talking, you just bring up things that I just did not know that I was going to ask you about. But earlier, you mentioned about feedback loops. How did you ensure that you did not surround yourself with people who were just going to be, I don't know what else to say, but yes, men and women, like they were just going to, because of your position and authority, that they had the confidence and that you articulated how important it was for them to challenge you on your own ideas. Because a lot of us can say, well, you know, we're the business owner. So whatever we say goes. And anyway, you get the point of the question. How did you do that and articulate that and create that environment where people were willing to challenge you on some of your ideas and thoughts? It takes a lot of thought about it because we all say we want those people around us. But when we get busy and we're trying to push something, we really don't want that. That's we right. want to look at everybody and we want a Greek correspondence going, yes, so great one. You nailed it. So you've got to construct that first. You've got to go find people who you know have that tendency. And then you've got to keep reinforcing it. You've got to tell people, I want you to tell me what I've got wrong. I want you to give me that. And that means the leader has got to be not just open to it. You can't just say, well, I'll listen to anybody because you may believe that, but they're not going to say it unless you ask it. So what I learned as a more senior officer is, and the higher you get, the harder it is. Because the higher you get, people are more nervous about being very candid to you. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to learn to ask questions in a way that elicits a different kind of response. So for example, I learned by the time I got very senior that if I went and asked people, okay, how's the strategy going? They know it's my strategy or whether I came up with it, I approved it. And so they're not going to go, well, I think this sucks. They assume I don't want to hear that answer. So they'll go, going great, sir. So you can't ask that question. What you have to ask is, and the way I learned to do it was, if I told you you couldn't leave Afghanistan until we win, what would you do differently from what we're doing right now? Now, what that is, it's kind of like you go from multiple choice question to essay question. You make them answer a broader thing and you have to kind of pull it out of them, but you have to pay attention. Meaning if you are a senior leader and you go down and you ask somebody's opinion, and then when they start to answer, you look over their shoulder like you're looking for something more interesting or the next thing, that just shuts it off. 
So you've got to listen. You got to follow up and pay attention. Two things that really stand out to me. I love the analogy you gave. Instead of giving multiple choice, ask a question where they give an essay answer. I love that. That was fantastic. I've never heard that before. And then it just illustrates, again, the power of great questions. And just as leaders, how important that is for us to develop that skill. And don't you believe it's a skill, by the way? It's not that somebody is inherently born as being, well, they're just a great question asker, right? They're just born with that. I don't think though at all. Don't you agree that it's a skill you can actually develop? You can. you got to sit back and think, what am I trying to get out of this conversation? What do I really want to know? Mm -hmm. And so that skill, sometimes you just watch people who are good at it. But you can also sit before you have an engagement with a group of people, you've got to decide what do I want from them and how senior are they with your experience level? What kind of questions do I need to ask them? And it takes a little bit of prep. You know, being a senior leader requires intentionality mm. because each of your interactions with people in your organization is a little stilted because of the often the difference in experience levels, but it's also not often enough, because if it's a big organization, you just can't mathematically. You've got to make each one effective. You've got to make it two things, very informational for you and inspirational for them. Are you a football fan? I am. So football season is upon us. And if we think about whether you're an NFL or a college fan, you think about you can do the right things at the wrong time. So in, for instance, if a team goes out, and does the two-minute drill to start the football game, you would be like, what in the world are they doing? That makes no sense. And the reason I bring this up is just in one of the 10 factors, you talk about timing. And you talk about how when we act affects the effectiveness of the response. Can you just touch on timing and how we can begin to think about that within our organizations? Sure. Timing is really hard because typically we say, well, the key thing about timing is doing something early. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not true. Sometimes you should not make a decision or start to act until you have as much information as is possible appropriate to that situation. The challenge is knowing a couple of things. The first thing you need to understand is what problem am I trying to solve? What's my challenge here? The second is what action will likely produce the outcome I want? And usually there's a cost associated with that. So you don't want to pull the trigger on it until it's appropriate or you have to do that because you don't want to spend huge resources on things that are unlikely to occur. But the key thing that a lot of leaders don't understand is if there is an action that, that will be effective or is needed, it has to occur at what point? You know, to identify that. When does that have to happen to be effective? Because if I swing at the pitch too late, no good. And so when do I have to start my swing for it to be effective? Then you've got to back it up and you've got to back it up to when do I have to decide to begin that action? And one of the things I saw routinely in government, I see it in business as well, is leaders don't understand that, that time relationship because they don't want to make an early decision because they don't want to make a mistake. So they defer the decision, defer the decision till they've got as close to perfect information as they can, and then say, okay, let's do X. Mm. Well, by that time, it takes too long for the organization to kick it into to motion to start to act and have the effect you want. So your effect swinging late at the pitch. Leaders typically have got to make decisions on imperfect information, but they need to understand what that point is. So one of the first things a leader should ask is if you have a growing potential crisis, learn enough to know what actions would be needed, what decisions produce those actions, how long they take to decide and how long they take to implement. And then when you've made those, then you start to say, well, I have to make a decision on this by this point, or it's of no value. And so routinely we see people not respecting that reality and then being frustrated when their decision doesn't work right. You know, I feel what I hear described there's almost this dichotomy between perfectionism and delaying on taking action of something. But on the other end, you hear, and I know you see often, people making decisions based on their emotions in the moment. And so that could be one of two things. So you're emotionally charged, both excited, things are going well, you've landed a big deal. So now you go think you can go hire 10 people off of that one thing. 
Conversely, things are happening and you decide to start slashing and cutting 10% of the workforce without actually thinking through that. Help us to reconcile how you, because at the end of the day, you're a human being too. And so whenever you were faced with having to make a decision in the moment, I'm sure your emotions were coming in. So how did you almost detach yourself slightly from the emotion of the moment to be able to make a logical thought through decision, even in spite of, as you just mentioned, imperfect information? Yeah, it's a really important point for leaders. First, when you have time to do due diligence, to study the problem, to get all the analysis, can gather data, you should do that. But there were many times when there's just not time to gather as much information as you'd like. The key is very upfront making the decision we said that says, or making the analysis that says, when do I have to decide this to have the effect that I want? And it may be now. You've got to decide this minute, or you're going to have a declining effectiveness of your decision if you delay making it. And that's when leaders often have got to say, okay, I am going to use my intuition, my experience, all the things that got me in this position, and I'm going to make that decision. If you think about a pandemic, for example, the problem with the pandemic is the growth of the viral spread is exponential. It's not linear. So the reality is a leader has got to make a decision far before it's obvious to people that it's going to be a pandemic. And so you are saying, hey, everybody, I am going to implement a number of things that may not be popular, may be difficult, may be expensive, simply because I think there's a very high probability that this thing will get out of control if we don't do that. And the hard part for leaders is if you do that and it works, and it doesn't become a pandemic, you've got all the people on the sidelines going, wow, we spent all that money, we did all those things, and in reality, it wasn't a pandemic. And the leader can go, well, yeah, it wasn't because I, we did that. And yet, if you wait till the house is on fire, then everybody says, we've got to do something. The reality is, in many situations, then your measures are relatively ineffective. Sure. And so that is a point where leaders have got to have a certain amount of courage because often the people around you will be counseling, well, let's wait till we get better information. Let's let's mitigate the risk of this decision being wrong or criticized. And sometimes leaders have just got to get in front of that. Nope, I think the risk of this is too great. We, in fact, we've got to act early. I just learned something there. So did you ask, did you actually, whenever people would come to you with a decision, would you ask, is this the decision I need to make right now or ask for that deadline? Did, were you clear in that? Yeah, I learned to be. And the first thing you ask is, okay, what decision are you asking? What is it you are asking me to approve or, or whatever you want me to do? It's pretty important to get that one. And if I got to go ask somebody else, if I need higher approval, I got to identify that right then. So you're asking me to ask for approval, which mm -hmm. again, you got to factor in a time factor. So the first thing, and then I'd say, when do you need this decision to execute this? And they always go, well, we'd like the decision right now. I'd say, no, explain to me when you need it and why you need it then. Because it educates you on the problem very quickly. Now, sometimes it's, yeah, we need it then. We should have made this decision yesterday, but we didn't know to ask it. All right, that's not hard. You need to go. Sure. But the reality is you've got to set these parameters up early or you'll tie yourself in knots. We started the conversation talking about how all of these factors are like gears and they affect one another. And what a beautiful illustration of that than what we just talked about whenever you were mentioning, we we're talking about timing, but then you were saying how that affects communication because you're just saying, wait a minute, what is the question you're asking me? Let me make sure I'm clear on this, number one. And then number two, what is the timeline in which I need to actually get an answer back to that? I think that was a great analogy. Well, obviously we would love to be able to go through all 10 of those. We touched on communication, timing, a little bit of adaptability and leadership as overall. I wanted to ask you, what do you believe? I mean, you've this book on risk and leaders, one of my favorite team of teams, uh, fantastic book, as I mentioned to you earlier. What do you believe? I think I've heard you mention that leadership is very misunderstood. So this is a two part question. Number one, why do we not really know what leadership is? And then in your opinion, what is the number one leadership trait that leaders need to develop? Sure. I think we don't understand leadership because we want to simplify it. We want to see a great 
woman or man come and tell us the way and go. And then we always get disappointed when we find out they're human. They make mistakes and they've got shortcomings and whatnot. And so we go through this sort of up and down. We love this person. We hate this person because they're not everything we hoped they'd be, mm-hmm. nor are we. So that's sort of one. And so when we put too much faith in the excellence or the omnipotence of a single person, we're going to get disappointed. That's going to happen. On the other hand, leaders are extraordinarily important. I will tell you, I bounce around on what I think the most important leadership quality is, and I've really come down to self-discipline. Most of us know what good leadership looks like. If we've been lucky enough to be exposed to it, we know what it looks like. We may know what bad leadership looks like because we've been exposed to that as well. We've had good days ourselves as leaders. We've had bad days, and we know it. So it's not a question of not knowing what we should do. It's not having the self-discipline to do it. How do we do all the things the way we know they should be done? How do we treat people? How do we make decisions? How do we do things? As opposed to default to something that is lazier. There are all other traits of empathy and whatnot that I think are very, very important. But at the end of the day, if a leader can't make themselves behave in a way that they know they should, then they're really not going to be very effective because it's of no value to know the right answer and do the wrong thing. My last question for you, and then we'll share with people how they can pick up the book, is how do we as leaders develop the skill and the confidence to be able to let go and actually empower the people who we are in charge of leading? Yeah, we all sort of philosophically can agree with it. We should do that. But then when we get in the moment, we centralize, you know, and just it's our company or it's our responsibility. And so we say they're just not ready to do that. I think it takes making the very overt statement to your team that that's what you're doing becomes a shared accountability there. If you get in front of your team and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to push down. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to give you information. I want you to do X. Hold me accountable if I'm not doing that. And then you say, of course, I'm going to hold you accountable to execute with the same level of responsibility and professionalism that we hope so. Otherwise, you have a tendency to be one kind of leader one day and then lapse back into centralized, et cetera. I think it has to become a cultural thing and you have to keep pushing the idea of shared accountability. That's so true. Yeah, I love that. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think I could talk to you for hours and ask you so many different things. Congratulations on the book. This is your fourth book, your first book, My Share of the Task, Team of Teams, Leaders, and Now Risk, a user's guide has just recently released. Joan McChrystal, how would you like for people to be able to pick up a copy? I know that they're going to want to. Yeah, it's really exciting for us. Of course, you can go on Amazon, you can get it, you can go through its Penguin Random House book. The key thing are the ideas. And if we all stop and think about, we deal with risk every day. There is no way to hide from it. So as I tell people, you don't need to read this book unless you deal with risk. And of course, the answer is, therefore, we all better read it. That's right. Absolutely. Well, Jordan McChrystal, thank you for your service to the country. It has been an absolute honor to get to speak with you for a few minutes. And I hope that we're able to have you back on in the future. Thank you so much. My honor, Brad. Thank you so much. Wow, what a conversation with General McChrystal. I was so excited to get to speak with him about so many different topics. I could have asked him questions for hours. A few things that really stood out to me. Number one, leadership more than any other factor can make a system function or fail. The name of this podcast is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. But I'm going to say that again. Leadership more than any other factor can make a system function or fail. It is so important that you continue to develop yourself as a leader. Number two thing I came across was just that conversation we had around the dichotomy of making decisions with imperfect information, but not also being paralyzed by not making a decision either. Number three, the philosophy is one thing, but execution is another. And whenever we got into the talking about delegation, he himself admitted, hey, it's difficult. It's not easy. And I think that was refreshing to hear someone at his level to be able to say, hey, this is not easy to do. Number four, Just great questions is a skill in which you can develop and one of the most important skills you can develop. And last couple, the value is in the planning, not in the plan. I actually talk about building a better business plan. If you've not listened to episode 38 of our podcast, go back and listen to that. And then lastly, which is the very last thing we talked about, 
And that is the number one skill or the number one trait you can develop in your leadership is self-discipline. Can't thank him enough for his time, for his service to the country. And for all of you who are veterans out there, whether you're an insurance agency owner, a team member that listens and you've served in the military or you've had family that have served in the military. Thank you. Hey, big shout out to our sponsors, Direct Clicks, Coach P Consulting, Relevant Advantage, and of course, Club Capital. If you want to be able to grow your marketing, make sure you reach out to Direct Clicks. They can help you with your SEO, your PPC campaigns. Hey, if you don't know what those are, maybe you should reach out Direct Clicks. Go to directclicksinc.com. Coach P Consulting, if you want to go to the next level in your agency, there's nobody else that's getting it done at the highest level, but also gives you the consistency of the coaching that you need. You know how important it is to develop your team members. We didn't get into development today in the conversation with uh, General McChrystal, but developing the people around you is so important. You know that, but maybe you've got so many different hats that you have to wear all the time. Reach out, allow Coach P to be able to work with you and your team and do it on a weekly basis, twice a week. What other program are you going to go to that's going to be able to do that? And you get a special 50% off your first month when you mention the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Of course, relevant advantage, you want to be able to do some marketing in your local community and show your customers that you appreciate them. Make sure that you look up relevant advantage, but they also own, if you're a state farm agent, SF agent promos and make sure you use the code club capital at checkout. And of course, speaking of club capital, we couldn't do this without club capital's support. They are the largest accounting firm in the country, CFO services, analytics, and so much more. If you want to work with the best of the best, there's nobody better than club capital. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm so grateful for all of you sharing this on social media, tagging us. We're just grateful. Until next episode, lead well. Welcome.